The Linux Reality Podcast is sponsored by O'Reilly Media, spreading the knowledge of innovators through its books, online services, magazines, and conferences. Visit them today at O'Reilly.com. Welcome to Linux Reality. This is episode number 75. My name is uh, Chess Griffin, and uh, glad to have you back. If you've uh, listened to us before and if you're new, welcome. This is a podcast that's generally aimed at the new Linux user. As I've said before, we kind of go back and forth between some uh, sort of introductory topics and some more advanced topics, got some interviews and things like that. So, um, But I, I was off uh, last week, so it's good to be back this week. I'll I do have some more news about my schedule coming up that I'll talk about here in a few minutes. In this episode, though, I'm going to sort of pick up on on the BSDs again and kind of, uh, uh, you know, you know, in in sort of in reference to the interview with uh, Will Backman, I thought I'd sort of talk about my own experience with the BSDs because, as I've said, I've sort of played with them quite a bit over the last year or so. And uh, so I do want to kind of talk about them and kind of give you my sort of general thoughts. And so that's what we'll kind of talk about this week. I do have a lot of announcements here, so let me get to these first. Uh, first of all, I just want to remind everyone about the O'Reilly Sponsorship Discount Code. That's um, L-R-E-L-40, which is also on the Linux Reality homepage. If you use that, you can get 40% off of your um, purchases at the O'Reilly website. Unfortunately, it's only good in the U.S., and so that's... That's disappointing, but uh, for those of you who are in the U.S., uh, feel free to take advantage of that. 40% off is quite a bit. And speaking of O'Reilly, this is kind of cool. A listener has contacted me and has offered to donate um, a copy of the LPI Linux certification in a nutshell. Um, I think think he said it was new or maybe just about new. I mean, I think – but I think it was new. Uh, But here he wanted me to kind of come up with a little contest to make it sort of fun, you know. Uh, and so what I thought I'd do is this is you know no big deal, but I, I think it would be kind of neat to because I'd really like to get some more listener tips and audio listener tips. And I've gotten some good ones through email, but the audio ones are just so great because it really adds, I think, to the show. So here's the contest. If you want to win this copy of the book and this listener uh, is going to send it, you know, free shipping and all of that. So you don't there'll be no charge. Uh, all you need to do is very simple is record a listener tip and send it in to me. And uh, we'll do this through the end of November. Uh, so you got a couple of months, and I will play the listener tips from here and, until then. And uh, we haven't quite figured out how we're going to do it. Maybe this one listener will sort of pick the top three, and I'll pick the winner out of those or something along those lines. But there's no real criteria. It's just extremely subjective, just, you know, what's the best listener tip? And so I would say it's probably a balance between the content, you know, the tip itself, and probably the audio quality, you know, if you can make it sound really good, and, and uh, that would be great. Of course, I'm not one to say, because I never feel like the audio quality of this show is really as good as uh, most other podcasts. I do my best, but I'm just not an audio engineer, and I don't feel like I've got the voice for it anyway. But uh, for those of you who do and who have good ideas about listener tips, feel free to record something. You can just record it as an MP3 or an AUG or even a wave if it's on the shorter side. 
and uh, just email it to me, linuxreality at gmail.com. And feel free to use the listener hotlines if you want to call in and record it that way. But probably recording it yourself and then just sending it as an attachment to an email is easier because um, I think Gizmo has maybe a two-minute limit on the voice on the voicemail. And so anyway, so I'll uh, mention this uh, in future episodes as well. But we'll have a little contest between now and the end of November for the best listener audio tip. All right, next thing is I wanted to mention is um, this is kind of cool. I've Over the last few months, I've been doing uh, quite a bit of, of Python programming, learning Python programming, that is. Uh, I used to program a long time ago, back in the early se- or late 70s and early 80s, when I was a, a kid in uh, you know junior high and stuff. I was programming in assembly language in Pascal, and I haven't really done much of it lately. But Python is really great. I've been sort of working with it quite a bit on the, on the side in my... <laughs> few minutes left over of spare time every week. Uh, but along but along those lines, one thing I've been working on is a little Python program, and it's no big deal. It's certainly nothing that hasn't been done before, but this is more of an exercise for me to, to learn Python than anything else. Uh, but it's going to be a little podcast client, and uh, it's going to be a little simple GUI, and it's almost like a GUI version of Bash Potter. It's going to be a little bit different. It's not using Bash Potter. It's a, I'm basically you know writing the whole thing from scratch. Um, but it's essentially going to give you a list of all your feeds and it will, you know, you can refresh the list almost like a feed reader. And then you can, it'll give you a list of, of episodes and then you can click the ones to download and it will download, you know, nothing, nothing crazy. But the thing I like about it for me, at least not only, uh, will I help, it'll help me learn Python, but you know, I mean, I've said before, I really like things that do one thing and one thing only I'm, I know a lot of people use, uh, music jukebox type software like Amarok or Rhythmbox or, or one of those type applications. And they're great applications, but I've just never taken to them to that type of player or iTunes. Even, you know, I like to, I use, you know, um, audacious or XMMS or even command line to, um, things to, to play my music that I share over Samba or SSHFS or something like that. And so I don't need any of those jukebox type players. And of course I use my uh, user, my, uh, 0.4 version of my uh, contributed Bash Potter um, variation, which has been great. I've been using that for a few years now, but it would be kind of cool to have a, a GUI similar to that. So that's what this is. This could be a nothing but a podcasting client. It'll just catch and you know fetch um, uh, episodes. So anyway, I'll just kind of keep you posted about that, and at some point I'll have the code up and and people can install it and play around with it. So. I'm torn between using uh, GTK, which is what uh, right now I've got sort of a mock-up going in GTK, and that seems to be working okay. But I thought about using it uh, in uh, PYX uh, widgets, which is basically using the X window or, or oh gosh, what is it? Uh, well, it's a, there's some other toolkits that are available, <laughs> and now I'm just totally drawing a blank, of course, as I'm sitting here uh, recording this. So anyway, the, the, the type of toolkit is still up in the air. It'll probably be the uh, PYGTK, just because I tend to like GTK programs. But anyway, so I'll keep you, up on, I'll keep you updated on that. Next thing here in the announcements, I wanted to mention Pat from the Linux Link Tech Show told me about this, and uh, it's, it's about the petition to open source main actor, which is a video editing application. As we all know, video editing is something that Linux is lacking, and there's a company out there that had developed a proprietary program called Main Actor, and I guess they've discontinued it. And so now there's a petition to try to get them to open up the, the code, open source the program. So I will put a link in the show notes to that petition. I definitely encourage you, if you're interested in that, to consider the petition or just read about it, let people know about it. 
And the last thing I want to mention here about my schedule, I have no immediate plans to change anything. I'm, I'm hoping to keep up with my one a week. That's always been my goal. Uh, things are a little bit crazy for me right now. I, I mentioned a few weeks ago that the reason I was off last week is we we're you know kind of redoing my office. And the reason we were, we repainted stuff is because we're in the process of putting our house on the market. We're not moving anywhere far. We're going to try to move in town closer to our jobs and to our kids' schools and stuff. But uh, that's going to – it may throw some, some monkey wrenches into my schedule with my equipment, and I may be moving things, and I don't know. So um, anyway, we'll just have to kind of see. If, if I miss a week, don't worry about it. Even if I don't get a chance to mention it in, in advance, I mean, uh, I'll be back. So, uh, But along those same lines, also, if anybody is interested in doing a guest podcast – I've mentioned this before as well, and I've got one or two in the works, hopefully – uh, please contact me if you've got any you know uh, topic that you'd like to talk about for maybe 10 to 30 minutes. I mean, it can be as short as 10 or as much as 30 or whatever. Basically, think of it as recording just the main segment of the show. You don't need to worry about the intro or the voicemails or any of that kind of stuff. I'll still do all that, but I'll basically start the show, introduce you, introduce your topic, and then we'll go into your recorded segment. So if you want to record something that you think would fit with this podcast that you have some knowledge about that you'd like to share, or if you'd like to tell a story about how you use Linux or, you know, anything along those lines. Um, I mean, folks who have been listening to this show, you kind of know what the sort of gist of the show is and what you think would work well. Feel free to record something, you know, maybe contact me first and let me know and, and give me an idea of what you're thinking. And, but more than likely I'll say, go for it. You know, I mean, I'd love to have shows on, how to use Inkscape or how to use GIMP or, you know, stuff like that. If you, you know, for ideas on how for, you know, for people who are experienced in using those applications, which, which I'm not, I think that kind of stuff would be great. Something along those lines would be very cool. So, and uh, anyway, just let me know what you think. And if you have any ideas, uh, we can talk by email, send it to linuxreality at gmail.com. All right. Let's see. I think, I feel like I had a bunch more, um, uh, announcements, but those are the only ones I have here in my notes. So let's get back to the uh, main segment of the show. Let's continue talking about the BSDs. Okay, the BSDs. Well, I think Will's uh, interview uh, two weeks ago was a great introduction to the BSDs, and I really wanted to get him on the show because he's got so much experience with the BSDs that, you know, I didn't really want to try to give you the history of the BSDs. I'm certainly not the right one to, uh, to do that. I'm still learning about them myself. But uh, I wanted to kind of come at this as sort of a Linux user using the BSDs. You know, what what have I found? What's been cool? What's been difficult? You know, that kind of thing. And this is merely from the, from the again, from the uh, perspective of a Linux user and a hobbyist. You know, there's probably going to be a lot of people that are, that just don't have the time or the inclination to try the BSDs. And that's fine. I'm not trying to convince you to, I'm just kind of giving you my perspective because as I did mention in that interview, I just love Unix like operating systems. And I just think it's fun to play around with these things. It's great that we have choice. So the ones I've been using mostly are FreeBSD, OpenBSD. Um, those are the two that I've spent most of my time with. Uh, I did a little bit with NetBSD and I've done a little bit with PCBSD. Uh, but the, FreeBSD and OpenBSD are the ones I've been spending most of my time with. Now, FreeBSD, as I will mention, is sort of probably got the biggest user base. It's sort of a broad-based um, BSD. It can kind of almost do anything. It's sort of, sort of your almost. I don't want to say you know general purpose, but I mean it can just. It, it's it's great at a lot of different things. 
it's great as a desktop, great as a server, great as a firewall, you know, you name it. It seems like it can do it. Uh, from a desktop user's perspective, however, um, I've been using it on the desktop on one of my workstations, and it's been really great. Uh, the nice thing about uh, the BSDs, as Will touched on, is that separation. And you really do find that in the separation of the base system with the third-party applications. And, uh, you know, I, th- I don't know if we really made this clear, but the idea is that everything is basically installed, third-party applications, that is, is installed in slash USR slash local for the most part. Um, so if you install CUPS, you know, the CUPS configuration file is not going to be in Etsy. It's going to be in slash USR slash local slash Etsy. Everything's in USR local, and it really separates the third-party applications from the base system. Now, to install the third-party applications in both FreeBSD and OpenBSD, they have this ports system. And ports is basically a directory. It's under slash USR slash ports. And it's a list of subdirectories by, divided by category. And each one of those subcategories are more, more, uh, more directories for different maybe subcategories or applications. And you, you navigate into the directory of the application you want to install. And you really have two choices. You can install a package or you can install it from source, from ports. Uh, if you install the package, you can do that one way. And that's similar to the apt-get system. It does resolve dependencies and things like that. It doesn't have totally updated packages, you know, updated to the minute. But basically, these these BSDs will give you a set of packages that have been sort of pre-compiled for that release. And those will all work fine. And those are found on the CDs or on the website, you know, through FTP or something. Or you can install from ports, which, again, involves going into these directories under USR ports and and typing make install clean. And make install will uh, fetch the source code, download it. It will check dependencies. It will download their source code. It will it'll do everything. It'll install everything from source and compile everything. And you can set different flags. Like if you want, I don't know. You know, if you want a an application built with support for for this feature or not, you can enable it. You know, sometimes an end curses a text based dialog box will come up where you can go down the list and select the options you want to have enabled. So you can really customize and tweak the software that's installed. Uh, there's a lot more to all of this. You can really set some compile time flags and all kinds of stuff. I won't get into the details. I'm just trying to give you a broad picture view. But my experience with installing from ports and packages has been overall extremely positive. I have not had any major issues. Now, when I've been using FreeBSD over this past year, they did have one major event and that was the change from xorg 6.9 to xorg 7.2 and that was a major shift i mean it did require compiling a lot of stuff from from scratch again and but that's sort of a one-time thing because xorg changed um, quite significantly between 6.9 and 7.2 but the the emphasis in freebsd seems to be more on the ports than on the packages so you do end up you know spending a fair amount of time compiling Although certainly they have packages for the big stuff, you know, all the desktop environments, they have packages, you know, open office, you can get a package for. So uh, it's usually end up, at least I've usually ended up installing most software from ports, but with some packages mixed in as well. On uh, OpenBSD, however, they really seem to emphasize the packages. And they say in many places that the packages are just the ports, just pre-compiled. 
so you know obviously they're, they're going to have sort of you know default settings that if you you know if it doesn't have what you want you may need to recompile through ports uh, but more often than not it works great and both of these systems are extremely stable and i mean they're really extremely full featured as again as far as the desktop experience goes uh, there are a couple of catches with both of these uh, uh, BSDs, and you know, Flash is an issue. Flash Seven works very well for me on FreeBSD. I haven't really tried it on OpenBSD. Um, Flash Nine, however, support is poor, if if non-existent. I mean, it really doesn't work at all. They're working on it. They realize it, but you know, the problem with it is that Flash uses also, which is really just for Linux. Well, I should say, I should even take a step back. The problem is Adobe has not supported the BSDs by releasing native players. So you've got to run it under this Linux emulation. It's not really emulation, but you can run the Linux binaries using the Linux compatibility layer. And like I said, in FreeBSD, Flash 7 works very well for me. Flash 9 doesn't work at all. Um, and Flash 7 works for most websites. And there's other things you can use if you need to watch videos. You know, you can use all kinds of tools to download the videos and then watch them in mPlayer or v- in, um, uh, VLC. Uh, there's many websites that do that for you. Uh, so that's, that's not really the issue, I don't think. Um, it's the navigation. I mean, one problem, one site I always go to to test is sci-fi.com. And that uses a lot of Flash-based navigation, and it just doesn't work in Flash 7. And so that doesn't work at all on FreeBSD, unfortunately. But um, most everything else seems to work really well. FreeBSD has HAL, you know, so you can have, like, auto-mounting of devices, and that, for me, has worked just fine. Uh, The hardware support in the BSDs overall is probably not as much as Linux, but what it does support, it supports very well, and in some cases better than Linux. I mean, OpenBSD is a good example. Their native wireless support is amazing. It's probably the best out of any free operating system. They may not support as many because they insist on you know free code and they don't use any kind of proprietary um, software or anything like that. So you can't have proprietary um, blobs running for the wireless chipsets. So they reverse engineer a lot of stuff. So not everything is supported, but what is supported works really well. And it's really kind of neat to see what OpenBSD has done with wireless support. Uh, Similarly, at least for me on FreeBSD, um, suspend to RAM works great, if it works at all. For me, it's kind of like an all or nothing. It either works and it works perfectly or doesn't work at all. Uh, Unfortunately, at least on FreeBSD, they don't have suspend to disk Usually, you can use an older system called APM, which will have suspend to disk. And uh, again, it's just kind of a mixed bag. It's similar to Linux in that regard. Um, Compiling a kernel is interesting, and we haven't really talked about compiling a kernel in Linux on this show, but compiling a kernel in Linux is not that difficult. The most confusing thing to me, at least, in when when I've compiled kernels, and I used to compile kernels a lot, but I haven't lately, is the the options. I mean, you go into the what is it? Make menu config or whatever to compile a Linux kernel, and the and and the nested tree of options for all the device drivers and everything. It's just it's staggering. It's overwhelming, and I don't know what to select as a module or to compile into the kernel. But with the BSDs, it's com- compiling a kernel is a snap. I mean, it's one simple text file that maybe I don't know, a hundred to two hundred lines long. It's not that really that long. 
and they just have all the options and you can just kind of enable them or disable them. And in actually in OpenBSD, they don't really encourage you to compile your own kernel unless there's a specific reason to. In FreeBSD, they tend to kind of go a little bit more both ways. But in, in any event, when I have compiled a kernel in, in OpenBSD, when I've patched the kernel for security updates, it's really easy. And uh, the other, you know, another neat thing is as far as compiling the system, you know, you can basically upgrade very efficiently and very uh, successfully from release to release. You basically just recompile the whole system. And there are ways to do that. There's, again, I won't get into the details, but I've done that uh, on one occasion with the open, with OpenBSD. They, uh, and it worked just fine upgrading from one system, from one release to another release. And in FreeBSD, I think I did it as well. And it, I upgraded from 6.2 to 7 current, which is the current version. You know, they sort of have a, have a release or a development branch. And I upgraded to that, and that's what I've run on my FreeBSD system is 7.0 current. And it's been very stable, and it's been, it's been good. Uh, you know, as far as application support, just about everything is available. I mean, it's all the same kind of free software, all the main desktop environments. I think Will touched on some exceptions other than Flash. You have things like Skype is only available using the Linux layer because there's only a Linux client for that. Uh, Gizmo, unfortunately, I don't think anybody's been able to get it to run, and they don't have a Gizmo client in BSD. So, you know, you run into things like that. And if anything, it's it's opened my eyes to the issue of, you know, making sure free software is really portable. And, and I you know, I sort of touched on that in the interview. I have found it fascinating that, you know, as a Linux user, you're so used to complaining about software written for Windows that they don't keep open source. But now in the BSD camp, you realize, you run into the same thing with Linux software. So I almost feel like you would think that the people that develop Linux software would know to make sure their their software is portable among all the different Unix-like operating systems, but they don't. Um, and it's just because, I guess, the BSDs don't have the user base that Linux does and all the, the news and all that kind of stuff. So... Uh, but the BSDs have just been great. I've really enjoyed using them. I mean, I'm a tinker, so I really like playing around with these systems. I've installed OpenBSD on a laptop, and it works really well. I've also installed it on I, I have a, a Socrus router board, which is a mini PC. I think I touched on it before, and I, that's acting as my firewall. Actually, let me think. I, that made me think of one thing. Mentioning OpenBSD on the laptop, I talked about their great wireless support. One little unfortunate catch with OpenBSD, and it's too bad given their great wireless support and their great laptop support, is there's no WPA uh, yet in OpenBSD. I think there is some movement in that regard uh, to bring WPA to OpenBSD. Uh, FreeBSD does have WPA, so it's not an issue there. But it is unfortunate, and I realize, I think from what I've read, I've done a lot of reading on this subject, there are some very, um, you know, uh, strong technical reasons why it's not just, you know, uh, for no reason. It's just because, you know, limited uh, time for the developers, limited resources. And I think there's some, some technical reasons why WPA is not as great, you know, a solution as some people make it out to be. Uh, so for all those reasons, uh, OpenBSD hasn't had WPA support yet. However, I think that's slowly changing. So that might, you know, it might be something to look for. Uh, as I said, in FreeBSD, WPA support is there. 
Uh, and now PCBSD, I've just spent a little bit of time with PCBSD, but it really seemed like a nice system. And I heard Will interview the, the fellow who made the, one of the main developers about their upcoming 1.4 release. And it sounds like they've really done a lot of neat things with uh, PCBSD. It's obviously a lot more user friendly. Uh, it's got a, you know, a really nice graphical installer. It's KDE only. So if you don't like KDE right now, I don't think there's any other options other than window managers like Fluxbox and that kind of thing. But they, they don't have GNOME. Although since PCBSD is really just FreeBSD, I would think, I don't know this for a fact, that you'd be able to install GNOME through the port system. Uh, but it really is a great uh, distribution. I shouldn't say distribution. Um, a great operating system. PCBSD is really nice, and it's a single CD. And they, the, the third-party PBIs do make it very simple to install software. It's just like Windows. It's just you download a single package, double-click it, and it installs. Their repository is not that big, but it, I looked through it, and it looked like probably 90% of the software that people use is in there. There's going to be some that's not. Uh, but 90% of the software that most people use appears to be in the uh, PCBSD repository. So, uh, you know, if you just want to test out a BSD, maybe start with PCBSD. I haven't used desktop BSD. There is a live CD out there called Freezebee, um, and I don't know the status of that. I think I did try that at one point, and it worked just fine, but I, I haven't checked on it lately. So I think they were working on a new release. Um, and as I said, and then NetBSD as well. So you can download ISOs of FreeBSD. If you want to use OpenBSD, um, they don't make publicly available ISOs. Uh, I mean, their entire software is free, of course, but they just they want to encourage people to buy CDs. So I have actually bought some CD sets from them. Uh, but if you don't want to do that, you can download a boot CD or boot floppy and you know install over the network, install over FTP or something. Uh, and then there are third parties that make ISO images available also. So that's for OpenBSD. But with uh, FreeBSD, they have ISO images available that you can just download and install. Now, with all of these, one last thing I should say is that it's all command line driven. I mean, none of them, well, other than PCBSD, but FreeBSD, OpenBSD, and NetBSD, when you install the system, you're, you, know, you, you get a prompt when you reboot that doesn't install graphical stuff by default. So you do have to uh, do a lot of manual configuration. So if that's not something that you know folks are interested in, that's probably you know may not be something that they want to try out because it is it does take some work to get things going. But uh, I have definitely found the BSDs to be a lot of fun to play with, a lot of a great learning experience. I've really learned a lot more about Unix in general, which I think is great, and Unix-like operating systems. It gives me an appreciation for the things that each one can do and, and some of the challenges that, that they face. You know, some operating systems are better in some areas than in other areas. And it's just, you know, it's just a lot of fun to play with and a lot of fun to tinker with. So I definitely encourage people to check out the BSDs if you have any interest in that whatsoever. And I think with that, let's check out some audio feedback. And then I've got some email as well. Chess and hello community. I just heard about this podcast about a month ago and I've been listening every day trying to catch up. So far I've made it as far as this evening to episode 54. I've been using Linux since Mandrake 6.4 I think, but I still consider myself a noob. This is mostly because I've been almost completely self-taught. I'd say that I've learned 
more about Linux in the last month listening to the show than I've learned in the last six years. Just a side note, in episode 54, there was this guy that said that even his wife liked listening to the show. Man, wouldn't that be great? I've been forcing my family to listen in the car, and they absolutely hate it. Nothing personal, Chess, but they're typical users that only want their computers to work, and they really care less how or why. So on to my tip. I really like the VNC episode. I've been using tight VNC for a really long time. I think I found it before I'd even heard of Linux. <clears throat> there was a lot of good information in that show. I'd always felt uncomfortable with the lack of security VNC provided, so your help with the SSH tunneling is greatly appreciated. One thing, though, that I do with tight VNC that I haven't heard anyone else mention yet that I find highly useful is the Java, Java version of the viewer. I'm the IT guy at a large company, and I find myself frequently working on someone's box when I get a call to look really quickly at an error on a box that would take five or ten minutes to walk to. Most of the workstations in the building are Microsoft-based, except for mine, of course, and a few others. But anyway, in the Windows version of Type VNC, the installation program loads by default the Java viewer. This is probably a huge security risk, too, but hey, they're already running Windows, so how much worse could it get, huh? On all of the workstations, I have only loaded the VNC server service without the viewer because I don't want the users to have the ability to even accidentally remotely control someone else's workstation. So when I'm sitting at a workstation that doesn't have the viewer installed, I bring up Firefox, and in the address line I type HTTP colon slash slash, the host name or the IP address of the workstation I want to connect to, and then a colon 5800. And 5800, for some reason in the Windows version, they they connect it to 5800 instead of 5900. When I do this and hit enter, this starts the Java viewer, and I'm able to take control of the workstation. Naturally, you would only want to enable this feature on your LAN and never on a box with a public IP address. I actually haven't done any experimentation with the tight VNC Java packages for Linux. I just noticed that they existed and that they had to be loaded separately. But obviously, it can be done. Thanks for all your hard work, Jess. Todd from Reno, Nevada. Excellent, Todd. Well, thanks so much for that audio comment. There's some good stuff in there. And, uh, yeah, I can certainly understand about your family uh, not wanting to listen. <laughs> Don't worry. I take no offense. Uh, but there's some good information there about uh, SSH, and uh, that's that's. I appreciate you sending that in. I probably should have put that as a, as a listener tip, but uh, thank you so much, Todd. I appreciate it. Here is another uh, audio comment. Actually, it's a question. Hey, Jess. It's uh, Mubix from Hack5 and uh, Room362.com. I had a question for you. I've been searching all over Google and everything to find out if there's any way to tether my Blackjack, which is a Windows Mobile 5 phone, to Linux so I can use it with Internet connection sharing and surf the Internet all over the place. Now, I know that's pretty easy with Bluetooth and the PAN service, um, and I've gotten that working, but I'm really interested in the USB version of Internet connection sharing. Uh, Thanks for answering my question. If you can, have a nice night. Well, I wish I could, but I can't. I apologize. I did want to play it, though, uh, because in case anybody else can help. Uh, if you know the answer, if you can help him out, please maybe post a comment in the, uh, you know, in the thread in the forums to this episode, episode number 75. Uh, if I knew it, I haven't done anything like that, at least especially with that kind of device. 
I've been working on uh, cell phone and syncing and Bluetooth and internet connection with a uh, with a trio, and I've got it sort of working from time to time. But I haven't I haven't gone with that device, so I I don't have anything to offer. But thanks for sending that in. Here is some um, here is an email from Andrew. Andrew says, uh, "Chess, I've recently discovered the podcast and have started back at the beginning episodes." I'm a Windows user, and while it meets all of my computing needs, as a PC technician, I often have to support computers running some distribution of Linux. I do not have enough time to commit to reading about Linux, so I listen during my commute. Your insistence on establishing a foundation has made your podcast one of the best that I have heard, easily as good as Security Now or The Real Deal at CNET.com. I have learned a lot from your podcast, and thank you for the content as well as the direction that you have chosen for it. From Andrew. Very nice, Andrew. Thanks so much. That's a very, very nice compliment. Here's an email from Rick. Rick says, I'm a newbie to Linux. I'm also a newbie to video production. For the past year, I've been using a commercial product that is expensive and just also only works in Windows. I want to be able to video production in Linux. I want to know what tools are available to do this. Well, Rick, uh, we've I've talked about this from time to time in the past. Um, you know, the, the the tools are not as great as they are in other operating systems. Main Actor, we touched on in the beginning of the show, is one that hopefully will become an open source project. Uh, there is uh, Cinelera, uh, which is a more advanced tool, but it does. Uh, you know, I've heard some good things about it lately. I used it five, six years ago when I think it was called broadcast 2000 or something but um boy it was really tough to use but it's a very powerful and i think it's a you know a top-notch program it's just you know it's got a little bit of a learning curve uh the diva project unfortunately was one that looked very promising but has died out uh there's kdn live there's pity tv i think there's a few others but you know kino is a, is a great one that's what i've used most of the time over the last several years uh which is good and uh, dan dennity is a is a great guy i've heard him several times on the linux link tech show uh he really is is very involved and active in the community and uh so look at kino look at um uh you know Cinelera, uh, look at kdn lives and there's a few others so it's just something we're going to have to keep working on. And hopefully if we can open source main actor, that might be another one we can add to the mix. Here's an email from David. David says, talking about the BSDs, I'm fairly certain the reason Stallman did not ally himself with the early BSD project was their licensing policy. As you know, the BSD license allows for almost anything, most notably for purposes of this discussion, the inclusion of BSD code in proprietary systems without restriction. This conflicts with the FSFs and Stallman's concepts of free software. As I understand things, Apple's OS is the product of BSD licensing, and it seems that Apple is resented, perhaps that is too weak a word, nearly as much as the Redmond behemoth in the open source community for their secrecy and lack of contribution. I would imagine that if Linux code were allowed to burst something like OS X in the future, it would be Stallman's worst nightmare. I believe the GPL3 addresses just these sort of concerns. The FSF slash Stallman stance is probably a good thing, as I believe the desire to be popular Linux code anywhere without restriction can work against the best interest of the community. Sincerely, David. Yeah, David, thanks very much for that comment. Um, that's, yep, I th you're probably right. I imagine that's probably why Stallman did not use some of the BSD stuff. And uh, there's obviously lots of arguments on the whole idea of free software and the licenses and, and all of that. So I won't even go there right now. <laughs> Here's an email from Bill. Bill says, I'm not really a Mac guy. I'm the only holdout in my office still using Ubuntu. But if nobody else mentioned it, the Mac OS is actually now a true Unix, unlike Linux and FreeBSD, which still have to call themselves Unix-like. Apple is one of the three or four companies now, along with Sun and IBM, to get the right to call their OSs Unix. 
I'm guessing that with the passion of most Mac users, you've heard this, but I figured I'd get my two cents in. I believe this mostly applies to system call compatibility. It also supports a full X11 server, so any Unix app can be compiled to run on the Mac. And I can tell you the things that make me jealous. The Suspend is amazingly awesome. This alone makes me want to buy one. It suspends within a couple seconds, resumes to full speed operation within a couple seconds, and being a Unix OS virtually never needs rebooting. The other real advantage it seems to have over Linux is the obvious ease of use. I'm a medium to advanced Linux user and have solved a lot of problems, but I can't seem to get the X11 system to let me run two monitors on a laptop. I've spent days trying and mostly just broke my computer. I watch in a jealous rage as the Mac users around here just plugging stuff in and all out (laughs) willy-nilly. There are obviously the GUI enhancements, which aren't as good as Barrel, but are much more reliable. Still, just about anything else you hear about how great the Mac is will be fanboy rants and probably not that significant. Still, I'd consider trading everything else for that suspend and the magnificent battery life it enables. I'll stop bugging you now. <laughs> yeah, well, Bill, I, you know, that's all true. But, you know, I would say that, you know, the reason for a lot of that is because Apple controls the entire stack. I mean, it's their hardware. It's their software. I mean, I would think that if you're going to sell a proprietary piece of software and a proprietary piece of hardware, that would better work that well. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you control everything, it, it should work perfectly. Whereas with Linux and the BSDs, they're facing you know vendors that don't want to give them information and specs, and they're, they're dealing with a ton of different kinds of hardware. You know, Linux is trying to run on hundreds of different laptops, whereas OS X only needs to run on, what, four you know, however many different MacBooks there are. Um, so, but, you know, clearly it is a it is a great operating system. A lot of people use it. We have a Mac here at home. And, um, you know, I have said before, no operating system is perfect for everyone. So they all have their advantages and disadvantages. Here's an email from Luke. Luke says, hey, Chess, I'm a longtime listener, and I wanted to share some exciting news while I was testing out FreeSpire 2.0. It works with everything on my laptop running as a live CD. As for my Broadcom wireless, all I had to do was enter my ESS ID and key. I know my way around my Linux systems, and I'm always looking for ways to help bring more people into the Linux family. I've never messed with this distro before, but I'm very surprised that everything I need to use on my laptop works automatically. I don't care that it includes some proprietary software. I'm giving a big kudos to FreeSpire. I'm very pleased to see how far Linux on the desktop has made it, and I suggest that anyone new to Linux should try FreeSpire. That's from Luke. Thank you very much, Luke. Here's one from Paul. Uh, talking about the BSDs. He actually sent me a long email, but I won't read all of it, but I do want to read just the beginning here. He says, Paul, I just wanted to add to Will Backman's comment about the documentation. I would agree that the free BSD handbook is extremely thorough, but I think for me, some of it can be too long. I have the free BSD six unleashed book, and that's honestly been a help, but I'm really looking forward to the release of absolute free free BSD in a couple months from Michael Lucas. He's the one that wrote absolute open BSD four years ago. Uh, he goes on to say that the, the OpenBSD uh, FAQ is awesome, and they have a great PF guide. Uh, that's a guide to their PF firewall. Uh, so uh, anyway, Paul, I, I thank you for that email, and I agree with you totally. The, uh, the documentation for the BSDs, and we'll touch on this at the very end of the interview, is top-notch. And I have to say that I never realized how poor sometimes the man pages can be and some of the other command line documentation in Linux can be. I really didn't realize that when you compare it to a BSD. I mean, BSDs, there's man pages for everything, and they're so well-written, and they tell you exactly what you need to do. It's amazing. Uh, and the FreeBSD handbook, I have actually found to be a, a, a lifesaver. It's a great piece of documentation. Here's one from Sean. Sean says, Chess, computers are fun. I taught myself to program in basic in 12th grade and took Pascal and Fortran in college. 
My first computer was a Radio Shack TRS-80 Color Computer 2. That was when computers were fun. When everything became DOS and Windows in the 80s and 90s, computers were not so fun. When I discovered Linux in 1994, computers became fun again and have been fun ever since. I've been a Linux professional since 2002 and have not used Windows or any Microsoft products in, on any work-related system for five years now. Have you heard about XAMP from the Apache Friends? Uh, noobs and busy seasoned pros with little time on their hands all enjoy the time-saving XAMP installer. Yeah, this installs Apache, MySQL, Perl, PHP, and other things in just minutes. Uh, he says, uh, I've installed LAMP on my Ubuntu work laptop and XAMP on my work Solaris 10 Sunblade, and both installs took only 15 minutes. Most of that was download time. Uh, the Apache Friends maintain installers for Linux, Windows, Mac, and Solaris, and that's apachefriends.org. Very good, Sean. Thanks. Here's one from Ian, and I actually responded to Ian by email, but I wanted to read it here. He says, uh, listening to your uh, uh, listener email about home servers, and I wondered how do you back up your home server? If you're running something simple that is just web pages that can uh, be easily burnt onto a CD, but what about something that uses a SQL database? I found what is presumably the actual database file, var slash lib slash mysql slash libdata1, but can you simply copy the database onto a CD? What if your database is too large or you only want to copy a small amount of it? I figured that other people would want to know as we're not all running huge RAID servers. Keep up the good work. Well, Ian, what I do for my um, uh, for all my MySQL databases is I use a script called Auto MySQL Backup, and it basically uses MySQL Dump, and you want to check on that command. You want to read about My MySQL Dump, D-U-M-P, all one word, so M-Y-S-Q-L-D-U-M-P. Uh, what that does is it dumps the contents of your SQL database to a file. That's what you want to do. You don't want to just copy the file that you find in var slash lib slash MySQL. Um, but you want to dump that into a .sql file. And then that is what you can back up onto a CD. But this auto MySQL backup script is great. That's what I use on my servers, including uh, the, the server that runs the Linux Reality website, my own website, all the databases I use are dumped every single night and it's got a rotation system in place where it has daily, weekly and monthly backups and it rotates them out. So uh, it's a really nice script. And um, uh, I will put a, if I don't, if I don't for, remember to put a link in the show notes, just look for auto MySQL backup. Great script. All right. Last one here is from Nathan. Nathan says, Hey chess, I'm a long time listener and want to say thanks for always hanging in there and producing a fine quality show. I just started a new blog over at ProductiveLinux.com, which focuses on tips, tutorials, and reviews on Linux software with the aim of helping people use their desktop more productively. If you feel like this would be of interest to your audience, I sure would appreciate a mention on the show. Uh, thanks, Chess. Keep up the great work. Yeah, well, Nathan, I think that's a great website, and so that's why I wanted to mention it. I encourage people to check it out. That's ProductiveLinux.com. And I think that is going to do it for this week, so it's time to wrap it up. Okay, well, uh, thanks again for listening, everybody, and for staying subscribed. Uh, you can reach me if you go to linuxreality.com slash contact. You can reach me a bunch of different ways. One way is by email, linuxreality at gmail.com. There's also some uh, listener hotline numbers you can call. You can leave a voicemail. You can also, of course, record something and send it to me uh, as an attachment to an email. That's fine, too. 
We also have the Linux Reality Forums at linuxreality.com slash forums. Uh, good folks in there, a lot of good conversations, very nice people, great fun place to hang out. So please do check it out and consider registering in the forums if you haven't done so already. Post your introduction. I try to respond to every single one. So uh, let's see. Next week, um, I'm going to get back to some other uh, technical tips and some other things like that. Uh, I do, like I said, uh, I do uh, encourage everyone to think about contributing a uh, an audio listener tip for that uh, contest for the uh, LPI certification in a nutshell book. And also, if you are interested in doing a guest podcast, you know, record a 10 to 30 minute segment on a particular topic or something. Just drop me an email and let me know. I welcome that. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Got to, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there to talk about that I am probably not the best person to talk about. The uh, the episodes on GIMP and Inkscape are just one example. I think those would be very helpful to people. I think they'd be helpful to me. <laughs> so if someone could step up and record those, that'd be great. It can either be one episode or maybe two different ones. That'd be pretty cool. So, all right. I'm done talking. Hope you all have a great week and a great weekend, and I'll catch you next time. This has been Episode 75 of Linux Reality. See you later. Bye-bye.